Investing with IBD is brought to you by Alliance Bernstein, a global investment manager offering active, flexible solutions across asset classes. ABS the tools and expertise investors need to get their portfolios ready to navigate late-cycle investing. To find out more, visit abfunds.com. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD for April 17th, 2019. I'm your host, Arusha Pires, and returning back to the studio this week is Chris Gessel, Chief Content Officer of IBD. Welcome back, Chris. Oh, it's good to be here. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the markets, current stocks, and we're going to end the episode with an interview from our sponsor, Alliance Bernstein, that's hosted by Randy Watts, who's from William O'Neill & Company. We had him back a couple of weeks ago. So, Chris, let's get started with the market. And All right. I, I don't know how much you want to talk about the market right now. Uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty tough day today. <laughs> I'll talk about the market all day if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in a confirmed uptrend, mm -hmm. and it's been a great uptrend uh, so far. Four distribution days on the NASDAQ, five on the S&P 500 starting today. Mm -hmm. Now, we're, we're just going to have to wait and see if we get another. It looked like a st potential stalling day, I think, on the NASDAQ. Uh, so we'll have to wait mm -hmm. and see if we, we get that. But here's the reality. The market's at all, near all-time highs. Well, yeah. In fact, uh, the Qs, the NASDAQ 100, did hit uh, a record high today at the open. And like the rest of the market, started reversing almost instantly. Uh, and, and, you know, basically the market was really nearly flat by the close, but this is one of those days where there were many different things going on underneath the surface. And, you know, the most notable for people like you and me was that gro growth stocks were really getting hit. It was a day when growth was out of favor. Uh, I, uh, the IBD 50 was uh, down at least a percent today. So uh, a big, you know, disconnect between the, the general averages and uh, leading stocks. And actually, you know, if you look at the Russell, I think the Russell was down, what, 1.2%, 1.5%, something like that. So, you know, often we see these days happen when small caps get hit. Uh, maybe the S&P holds up, but uh, we definitely feel it on in our portfolios. Oh, for sure. And one group that I noticed today, Chris, and I, I was surprised, and I, I guess I was a little lucky that I didn't have too much exposure uh -huh. to, to this sector and, and to these industry groups, were the, the medical medical sector. Uh, there were some yeah. stocks that got hammered today. and I, in, in fact, they got hammered so much that I got up, I walked over to your office and, and asked, Chris, what is going <laughs> on to the medical stocks? Okay. Well, uh, the thing that's been hitting the medical sector really started with the health uh, insurance companies like UNH, and that is, you know, there's been more talk about Medicare for all, and so, especially with the health insurers, that business could go away entirely. So those stocks have been selling off this week, and then it kind of, uh, you know, started spreading to some of the other stocks, especially pharmaceuticals and uh, biotechs, as well as some medical uh, equipment stocks. So the you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, political risk is always an issue for, for stocks. And, uh, it you know, the charts don't look real good right now. Right. And and there are three stocks that I just wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. When everyone gets a chance uh, at home to pull up their charts, uh, take a look at these three stocks. The, the first one was Massimo, ticker symbol M-A-S-I. 
And this one has been trending pretty well, and they just got hammered today. Uh, and it broke the 50-day on heavy volume. Uh, the second stock, Intuitive Surgical, ticker symbol ISRG, another one that just broke the 50-day on heavy, heavy volume. And then the final one, Tandem Diabetes, which was uh, a super moving stock over the last year. Yeah. And uh, they broke the 50-day on heavy volume, too. And so with this, the uh, I mentioned this 50-day break on heavy volume. This is this is uh, an action, a technical action that we use as a sell signal a lot of times, or at, or at least as a very big <laughs> warning sign. Well, it, you know, it, it depends on where you you know got in on the stock, what your conviction about the stock is. But at the very least, you should probably be taking a few shares off the table at this point. Now, we are also in another important time of the year. Mm-hmm earnings season. Sure. <laughs> and, and it depends on how well earnings season goes, uh, because it can be a, a happy time or a sad time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so everyone out there should make sure they know when their stocks are reporting, because these days, and really for the last 15 years or so, I guess, it, it's just been these stocks gap up huge or, or gap down really big. And it really depends if I'm on the stocks or not. Um, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about earnings gaps. I, I think mm-hmm. this is one of the things that I've, I've looked at over the years uh, to help me manage my risk and uh, also to help me identify new stocks, too. And so a lot of times, I, if I'm not in the stock, I'm, I'm going to be watching these stocks with a lot of potential, and I'm going to see how they report. And these days, it almost seems like, You'll have these stocks with potential. They're setting up, and every, everyone's just kind of waiting for that earnings uh, report. And then they have this reaction. And so you can have an even, even more powerful breakout on an earnings uh, reaction, and it could be an earnings gap. Uh, and so these, these, if I really like the company, if it's really, really strong, I'm going to actually start uh, trying it at that point. I'll start building a position at that time. Yeah, ever since Reg FD, uh, Regulation Full Disclosure, uh, came out in the early 2000s, this it completely changed the complexion of how earnings reports uh, uh, are and how you have to deal with them. I, I mean, I remember back in the 90s, you never had these sorts of gaps that would go against you. It was just so un, uh, uncommon because if there was bad news coming out about a stock, it would leak out to the institutional investors and they would start selling it. And and so if you knew how to read charts, never a problem. Uh, the, the stock would show weakness a, ahead of earnings. If it was okay ahead of earnings, it might gap up and, and you know run really well, or maybe it might just you know kind of fritter around and, and not do much. But those big earnings gaps down never really happen with canceling stocks if you were really looking at the at the charts right. Yeah, those those were apparently good old times <laughs> back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I still uh, wish they were around. But <laughs> the thing is, if you know what to do with uh, these these stocks, you can really still take advantage of, of these moves. And I know that earnings gaps can be really uh, intimidating for a lot of people to buy because you're looking at a stock that is up maybe 10 or 15%. And who wants to buy when it's that extended? I mean, we're always telling people, don't chase stocks past the 5% buy zone and all that uh, sort of stuff. But when it comes to gaps, that's actually a good sign, and it's actually uh, can be, uh, you know, a sign of, of 
further strength when it when it, cut, it gaps out of a base so strong. Yeah, and I think that's the key. You usually want to make sure they're gapping out of a base, mm-hmm. and and so it's a another uh, type of breakout. It's a more powerful breakout, and and I usually ca- it's usually called a, a breakaway gap, mm-hmm. and a breakaway gap on earnings. You know, you're just kind of combining both of them, and uh, those are those are kind of setups that I look for. Uh, because now I know if the stock has potential, if they have some great earnings, and now they're gapping up and they're getting all this strength and they're finishing strong, especially on that day, uh, I have 13 weeks. I have a quarter <laughs> to build my position, right, yeah, to see if a- it works and build a cushion going into the next earnings season. And, and then now if I'm up like 10% or so, I can hold my position into the next earnings season. At least then if it gaps down, it's not never fun, but at least I'm giving profit back and not principal. Yeah. So tell me, uh, how do you go about it? Like when you're you come into the office and you're looking at your watch list and you see that uh, some things are up big pre market. What's your plan of action at that point? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, and I, I guess we could use an example here. And uh, one the one stock that I bought in last uh, quarter off of an earnings gap and off of a breakaway earnings gap was uh, Xilinx, and Xilinx has ended up doing really, really well. And so I noticed it in the after hours the night before Mm -hmm. that it was it was looking like it was guiding higher. And so they excited Wall Street. So a lot of times the reason they're they're, they're gapping up is because they've excited Wall Street. And I think more importantly, Wall Street is behind the story. They they don't realize how good these guys are doing, how good this company's doing, and so they don't have enough shares at that point. So they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we 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 thought Xilinx was gonna report twenty uh, percent this quarter. They're reporting thirty percent, right? And they're selling out of their uh, their chips or whatever. Uh, and so yeah, this so a lot of times, and this takes me years just to kind of, I guess, condition myself and train myself to if they has everything, uh, the the fundamental story. I'm I'm gonna start buying pretty much right after the open. I'm not gonna wait around too long. I'll now I'm not gonna buy my whole full position on that one time. I'll slowly scale in throughout the day, but I'm starting to buy initially, and then I'm gonna hope that it holds up. Uh, if it's if I'm down five percent from that initial position, now I'm gonna get out of it and and then uh, you know kind of reassess at that point. But it is a, it's a coin flip at that time. But for it's I don't do this all the time. But for those stocks that have the potential, in my opinion, it's worth taking risk to at least get something at that time. Yeah, especially when you're looking at stocks with first and second stage bases, uh, you probably don't want to, you know, be, you know, well, not sitting through earnings in third and fourth stage bases. Maybe uh, the gaps are easier to, to buy. But you know, earlier stage where where people aren't expecting a surprise. Uh, later on, then the expectations start rising, and then you're more likely to get a disappointment. Right. And and one, one thing with Xilinx was already, before the earnings gap, they were showing a lot of relative strength. They yep. were forming higher highs. Uh, the relative strength line was acting well. And then they had this story where there are semiconductor chip where you can actually program the chip to do different things, which is kind of mind-boggling. Uh, and they've been around for a long time, but now with artificial intelligence and the data centers, which all of a sudden now the demand has uh, is requiring more flexibility on these chips, uh, Xilinx now has become this kind of go-to uh, company, and they're really the the leaders in this type of chip right here. And so that customization is almost a disruptor for the entire semiconductor industry, uh, as opposed to most semiconductor chips. 
They just built it one way, and th that's how it's going to function. This one, you can kind of go in and program it over and over again. Yeah, and uh, you know, it is a company that's been around a long time, and that's always kind of tough. It's uh, when you see you see uh, a company that you know it's it usually is in the mid-teens and earnings and sales growth, which is okay, but not great. But then they started. You know, showing this acceleration and those earnings really did accelerate. That's another thing that caught our eye because we put it on leaderboard that day. And uh, for folks watching the video, uh, we've got a five-minute chart of Xilinx showing how it looked on the day of that gap because we'll often on leaderboard put stocks up. And what we've learned is, you, you know, not necessarily for us buy right on the opening price. Uh, we usually wait a couple minutes, usually five minutes, and just see how that first five-minute bar looks. If it's, you know, arrow up, if it's closing near the top, if it's uh, uh, just looks like a good, solid, uh, healthy bar. As soon as that bar finishes, you can start buying at that yep. point, and that's a good way to to just reduce your risk. You give up a little bit of uh, potential profit. In the case of Xilinx, I think. That first five-minute bar ended around 100, and it closed the day at 106. So you're already up 6%, and all you had to do was wait five minutes and just make sure that there's not a, a reversal going on, at least in the get-go. Uh, because we've seen many examples of stocks that gap up and immediately start selling lower, even in the first minute, and then by the first five minutes, it's a red bar. It looks terrible, and it continues going down. Oh yeah, I've, I've definitely that that's definitely been my experience too. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's these these earnings gaps. You're definitely taking more risk. Uh, I, I don't once again, I don't do it that often, but for a few stocks, I will just take a shot. And mm -hmm. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But at least you get something, and it's not. I'm buying maybe a five percent position at that point, and now if it starts working. I am more confident to scale in, as yeah. opposed to if I waited 10, 15 minutes for Xilinx, it was already gone mm -hmm. at that point. Now it's a lot harder to to get into it. So, so yeah, that's how I that's how I do it. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it, we're in this situation, and, and you talked about Reg FD, where we've almost had have had to adapt mm -hmm. to this new environment over the last 15, 20 years, just because this is just a a recurring phenomenon that we get every earnings season. Uh, okay, so the market, once again, is right near the new highs. So you want to make sure that uh, we could consolidate here, and so you want to make sure you're you're being disciplined, keep an eye on all of your stocks. Remember, a lot of those medical stocks are starting to sell off here. But I think the bigger thing is for your portfolio, earnings season has started. So make sure you know when your stocks are reporting. Coming up next, imagine your vacuum is, listens to you, <laughs> and you tell it to clean your house while you sit on the couch and listen to the podcast. We're going to talk about this next after the break. Want to find stocks like the ones on this podcast? A lot of the best names we talk about come from IBD's exclusive stock lists, like the IBD 50 and the Big Cap 20. Whatever type of investor you are, we got a list for you. You can access every one of IBD's lists, plus stock ratings, exclusive analysis, and one-on-one -on -one coaching with a membership to IBD Digital. It costs less than a dollar a day, but for podcast listeners, we're offering an even better price. Go to Investors.com slash podcast offer right now and get your first two months for only $20.
Okay, so let's talk about iRobot. Mm-hmm. Now, these guys have been around for a while now, and they make a robotic vacuum, the Roomba. And, and so a lot of people out there listening to the podcast, they probably have one. And, uh, but room, uh, what iRobot has done in the last year, they introduced a new Roomba, the next generation, the i7 Roomba, that it does a couple of really cool things that now is actually kind of exciting me. Uh, this vacuum cleaner automatically empties itself. Really? So it just goes around and then just takes care of it. Uh, it has a smartphone app on it, so you don't, you can just tell it from the smartphone. Or you can actually, it, 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 it links up with an Alexa device, one of the Amazon Alexa devices, and you can say, hey, Alexa, tell Roomba to clean the room. You can actually, it's a voice activated. And now here comes the Roomba that's going to clean the room. Or you can actually say, uh, Alexa, uh, go and find Chris's mouse pad. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's My per- mouse pad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it, it's pretty amazing. And so when I first heard about iRobot, I was like, iRobot, they went on their great run back maybe 10, 15 years ago. And, and we yeah. remember that, right? Uh, and and one big part of that run was they were into military. They built a lot of military robots. And with the whole Iraq war, it was there was huge demand for it. They actually sold that part. Oh, wait, now they're focusing on consumer, but the main driver for this, or one of the big drivers for this, is the smart home. Now, a lot of newer homes being built, uh, they're becoming a lot more intelligent, and here's iRobot with all this proprietary technology, and they're, they're, meeting, they're all of a sudden meeting this lar- large demand or increasing demand of new intelligence, artificial intelligence, and smart homes. And so these robotic vacuums are just going to become more and more in demand. And naturally, the stock is starting to act a lot better uh, since <laughs> yeah, the last earnings really report. Has. Yeah. And, and actually, iRobot started out with an earnings gap. We spoke about earnings gap in the previous segment. They started out with an earnings gap, uh, and it was, it was a little bit lower, but now they've formed a flat base. Let me just uh, pull up the, the chart here. Uh, they, they, they're forming a flat base. It's kind of a base on base right here. And in six days, they're going to report earnings again on April 23rd. Uh, so the stock technically actually is setting up now, too. Yeah, it's nice because it's a, it's a you know, fairly tight flat base on top of a fairly deep cut base that was about 39% deep. And that, this is something that we see a lot. You get these deep, you know, wild bases during uh, corrections, and then maybe the stock, you know, will we'll break out slightly, stall, go sideways, and then build a much more bullish base from which a, a, a bigger run will will launch. So, I mean, it's looking good right now. The other thing that I uh, note is Columbia Acorn and Prime Cap Odyssey. Those are two funds that Bill uh, O'Neill, you know, followed for years and years and would always, you know, if they were buying a stock, he was very interested in that stock. So it's good to know that they're in into this uh company as well. So, I mean, I, I'm definitely going to put it on uh, my watch list. Maybe we'll look at it for leaderboard. But it does have a lot of, of the things that we like to see ahead of earnings. Yep. And so this one, potentially, you have an, an earnings gap up. Maybe that leads the, maybe that's a catalyst that mm-hmm. causes the breakout. And so one to keep on the watch list here. Now, the second stock is Mercury Systems, uh, ticker symbol MRCY. And uh, these guys are in the defense industry. They're a subcontractor. And they supply parts for the F-35 fighter jet, 
and and some other uh, uh, weapons systems too. So with defense budgets increasing, mm-hmm. uh, their demand is uh, going up, and uh, so it you, you'll and one kind of thing that's interesting with these guys is they're also growing by acquisitions over the last few years, and so it's uh, that that's always been kind of an interesting uh, thing for me to kind of understand. Uh, you have a company that's going through kind of the organic growth, right? They have one great product. Now they, they go through a certain part of their life cycle and their growth in their company, and all of a sudden now they're going to grow more towards acquisitions. Oh, let's get into this market. Let's get into this, and they're starting to buy some companies in, into those uh, to get their, their foothold in those markets. Yeah, I mean, the, the defense market isn't usually a, a, a you know huge growth market. You know, you'll see companies organically growing in maybe the mid-single digits or the low teens, something like that. And and that's what Mercury does kind of in between its acquisitions. But then you'll see in its earnings how it might get three or four quarters of nice double-digit earnings. Like lately, uh, it's been, you know, 47% and then 5 and then 68 So there's something going on there. Yeah. But I think that uh, the estimates for the next few quarters are, are pretty good as well. So... They seem to do acquisitions well, and this is another one where it's a nice base-on-base uh, formation. RS line is near a new high, and we, you know, that's that's always important. It tells you that this is a leader already, or and uh, if it breaks out, we assume that that RS line is going to make a new high, which is something we definitely want to see on a breakout. And it looks like their earnings are on April 30th, so after uh, the close. After the close, so in a couple of weeks. Uh, for this. So another one to keep on your radar. And the final one uh, is a company that I'm sure everyone's heard of (laughs) and probably uses, uh, Amazon. And ticker symbol AMZN for those at home. Let me write that down. Yes. (laughs) Now, uh, fair disclosure, I I do own shares of Amazon. And uh, Amazon, I think, is a great one just just when you have time, go back and study because the, uh, as, as we all know, we know them as the e-commerce company, but it was really probably four or five years ago when Wall Street started to realize that, hey, they have this other segment called Amazon Web Services. That's when the company really got going again, right? Yeah. Or at the stock, I would say, uh, got going again. Uh, a, a few things that were interesting here. Now, Lyft just went public. Well, they spend $80 million a year on Amazon Web Services, and they're recently signed a contract for $300 million for a three-year contract. And Pinterest, another IPO that's coming out, they're spending like $440 million uh, on Amazon Cloud Services uh, for the next few years. And then Amazon's going in all these other kind of uh, directions, too, with Amazon Go, these grocery stores where you don't even have to pay. Uh, it's all just kind of deducted. You, there's no checkout lines. I think you, you just kind of walk pay, out. You do pay. <laughs> you do pay, uh, but you just walk out, right? There's right. No, there's no lines there. And then of course they're heavily involved in AI. Um, so their stock, they're building a big cup, and uh, the reporting on April 25th. And so they're still. It's kind of interesting. We've had this really strong rally. But a lot of this is a great example here. A lot of these larger cap tech stocks didn't necessarily participate. They didn't lead the rally this time around. Right, exactly. As opposed for the as opposed to the last couple of years where they were the leaders of this rally. But here's Amazon. They're building a really big cup. Looks like the depth is 36 percent here. They're reporting on April 25th. Maybe they get 
maybe they excite Wall Street or uh, increase their guidance, and uh, maybe they get an earnings gap that gives them the catalyst to complete and finish this base. Now, it is a large base here again. Maybe it does something like an iRobot where breaks out and then forms a smaller, tighter base, a more constructive base. Yeah, it kind of did that uh, within the base already, and that's probably where you got shares. That's and true, yeah. that's also where we added it to leaderboard when it uh, broke out of that little base within the base. But it's 9% off the high. A big uh, earnings gap could you know, push it to, to uh, record highs, and that would be a breakaway gap and something that we'd definitely be interested in. It's, I mean, it's obviously a great company. It's just, you know, phenomenal the growth that it's been able to do, even as it gets uh, so huge. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But in the other thing, it's an institutional favorite. Everyone's, you know, even you know, especially the very top mutual funds are in this stock. Uh, although there have been quite a few funds that that have uh, trimmed their holdings over the last quarter and mm. last six months, especially during the correction. So. You know, there might be a lot of fund managers out there just, you know, uh, eager to, to restore their positions and just looking at that earnings report out there to see if it's going to, if it's going to, uh, you know, be a kickoff to another big uh, run. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because this is kind of like what Microsoft did at the end of the 90s or mm -hmm. Apple did, you know, end of the 2000, where the stock just gets too big. Right? Is is Amazon, you know, getting near that point? Well, well obviously we'll have to wait and see. But uh Well that, last that, year it wasn't that big. It had that, a fantastic year. That's true. That's true. And up up until about October. Right, right. So so but that that's one question that we hear and, and I think this is the the beauty of charts and using relative strength, even though I do own shares of it, it's not one of my bigger positions. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's just more okay, let me just slowly build a position in the stock. Uh, because it, it definitely hasn't been an outperformer over the yeah. last few months. The relative strength line is still well off the old high, and even even kind of in that that area where it was building the base within the base, uh, it's just barely above that. So it's it's definitely performing decently. It's not outperforming by any strong you know measure. But again, you can't count uh, Amazon out, and if it if it really blows away the estimates and things are looking good, I could see this uh, breaking away. Yeah, and yeah, um, they're trying to get more into the healthcare industry. Right. They've, they've done that joint venture with uh, Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan, too. So, yeah, they're, they're trying a number of different things, and so anything's possible because they're so diverse, and they've proven over and over again they, they can successfully get into another industry and, and really dominate it. Uh, so there's potential for great growth stocks in any industry. You know, even in vacuums, you can <laughs> find some good ideas. So let's take a break. Uh, but just a quick reminder here, I'll be in Chicago next week uh, for the trading summit. So I'm not going to be on the podcast, but the good news is we're going to have Chris on the podcast. And we will also have Justin Nielsen, IVD's market researcher, joining Chris on the podcast. And they're going to continue the conversation on earnings. And they're going to take it to the next level. Uh, they're going to talk about our earnings options strategy. And uh, so coming up, we're going to have an interview from our sponsor, Alliance Bernstein, that's hosted by Randy Watts of William O'Neill & Company. Stay tuned.
Hi there, this is Randy Watts. I'm the Chief Investment Strategist of William O'Neill & Company for Investing with IBD. And today we've got a special interview with Eric Winograd. Eric's the Chief U.S. Economist for Alliance Bernstein. Eric, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. So one thing that's been interesting recently is the change in Fed policy towards interest rates and also their tightening. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about how you see that evolving over the course of the year? That's right, Randy. The, the Fed, for most of last year, seemed fairly set on the idea that they were going to continue to raise interest rates well into this year. Uh, financial markets reacted pretty poorly to the Fed's last rate hike in December, and more specifically, I think, to the idea that there were more rate hikes to come. A and starting with their January meeting, the Fed has backed off quite a bit, and the market is now not expecting any further rate increases this year. That's positive for the market, and what I think is particularly positive about it is, is that it has come without any serious reconsideration of the economic outlook. Right, A lot of times when a central bank eases policy, they're doing it because the economy has weakened significantly, and so the implications for markets can be very mixed. In this case, though, the economic outlook hasn't changed that much. It still looks relatively solid over the course of this year, and you have the possibility of, of interest rates not going up. Uh, so I think that that's why the, the market response has been so favorable to, to the Fed's backing away from their previous plans. Eric, there, there clearly was a slowdown at the beginning of the year with the government shutdown. Uh, investors, it seems, are expecting better economic growth as we move through the year. Uh, in addition, other central banks, like the People's Bank of China, like the ECB in Europe, have changed their policies. How do you see all of these central bank changes resulting in growth for the back half of the year? We do think that, that it is correct, just as a factual matter, that there will be a slowdown in the first quarter. The, the government shutdown does matter to growth uh, in, here in the U.S., and the incoming data from overseas have been pretty weak as well. We, we've seen in Europe in particular uh, a weakening of growth. But you're right that central banks around the world have responded to that short-term fluctuation, and we do think it's a short-term fluctuation, uh, by backing away from plans to tighten, or in some cases, particularly in, in places like China, actively easing. Uh, and, and that contributes to, to growth picking up in the second half of the year. But look, that, that's something I think we expected anyway and that most investors probably did. Uh, one of the interesting things we've seen over the past few years is that the first quarter of the year has almost without exception been the weakest. Uh, growth has generally picked up in the second quarter and into the second half of the year. And it's not entirely obvious why that has happened, but it's a well enough established pattern now that I think most investors expected that anyway. You combine that with the idea that central banks are responding to short-term blips to the downside, uh, and you end up with uh, a reasonably high degree of confidence, or at least we do, that the first quarter will again be weak, but that the outlook for the rest of the year looks quite a bit brighter than that. One thing that's a little bit unusual about this economy is we've had good job growth. We've had fairly decent overall economic growth, but there's been very little inflation. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? It's the great mystery of this expansion, really, uh, because typically we would expect that strong growth and strong labor markets in particular would lead to higher inflation. We've even started to see the strong labor market push through into wages, which are, are running w well above 3% at this juncture, the, the highest they have been this cycle. And yet inflationary pressures seem very muted. Uh, the relationship that economists talk about is called the Phillips curve, and it's the idea that when you get an increase in growth, when you get a tightening of the labor market, you're supposed to see inflation go up. 
And, and we really haven't seen that, at least not to the degree that we would expect. That's why central banks around the world have been able to be, uh, to borrow the Fed's word, patient uh, at this point in the cycle in, in raising interest rates, because we aren't seeing that inflationary pressure. And there are a lot of potential explanations for why that's the case. One, I think, is that the global economy isn't as strong as the U.S. domestic economy is. And so prices for things that have to compete globally uh, really haven't been able to go up quite as much. Uh, that, that's certainly a part of it. Um, but beyond that, it, it remains something of a mystery why firms have not been able to, to pass input cost increases onto consumers. Uh, and it's unclear whether they will or, or the, the extent to which they'll be able to do that in, in the, the rest of this cycle. That's very interesting. If I could maybe follow up with, with two questions on that. The first is uh, the U.S. dollar has been relatively stronger over the last year. That's helped uh, end consumer prices in the U.S. and helped inflation, obviously. Do you have any thoughts about the dollar for the rest of the year? So the dollar is stronger now than it was a year ago. But really, if you look at it over a four- or a five-year time horizon, its value really hasn't changed very much. It's been stable. So while in the short term, I think you're right that the, the dollar's move last year did reduce a little bit of inflationary pressure, I don't think that that really explains the, the extent to which inflation has failed to pick up the way we might have expected. Looking forward, you know, forecasting currencies is a very difficult business. Uh, former Fed Chair Greenspan used to compare it to flipping coins, and, and a lot of days it feels like he's not far wrong on that. Uh, we don't have high conviction that the dollar will move dramatically in either direction. Yes, the Fed has moved in a more dovish direction, but so too have other central banks around the world. Uh, and because foreign exchange is necessarily relative, right, it's, it's the value of the dollar against another currency, if every central bank moves the same direction, it's not clear that that has a meaningful impact on the currency. Uh, so, so we tend to think that the dollar might drift a little bit stronger from here, but we don't expect to see a, a dramatic change in its exchange rate that would really influence business decision-making or that would be really disruptive for financial markets. One of the things that's also been discussed quite frequently recently, and I, I've never been able to figure out how much I should worry about it, is the U.S. deficit. Uh, that's a, bi a big point of discussion. I know it's, it's risen recently. Do you have any thoughts on that and its effect both for uh, the economy and investors? I'll take it even one step further. It isn't just the U.S. deficit that we ought to be thinking about. Uh, since the financial crisis, there's been an increase in global debt of almost $60 trillion, which is an unfathomable sum of money. I mean, $60 trillion is a meaningless sum of money in the sense that it is so large as to not be, it's something you can't really put into a perspective. It, it's just an enormous amount of money. That said, when a lot of people in the market talk about the debt level, they talk about it in the context of a potential crisis and say things like, well, we'll never be able to pay that back. It's not possible. Buyers will stop buying it. Interest rates must go up. And as a result, we'll have some sort of debt crisis. That's a possibility, of course, and the more debt that's out there, the bigger the possibility is. The way I tend to think about it, though, is not so much in terms of a potential crisis, but as a very high probability that it will reduce future growth. Right? Let's assume for the time being that there isn't a crisis and that this debt continues to exist and there continue to be buyers for it. Even so, you have to roll that debt over or pay it back, and every dollar that you spend on interest payments or rolling over debt is a dollar that can't be spent on productive investment, right? And so necessarily when you borrow money, what you are doing is borrowing tomorrow's growth and bringing it into the present tense, 
right? You want more growth today, so you borrow money, and the cost is you're willing to have less growth later. And so I think that we will have lower growth in the future than we otherwise would have had as a result of this debt level. Uh, and again, while I don't expect a debt crisis in the, in the forecastable time horizon, the risks of it do go up as the, the amount of the debt goes up. Alliance Bernstein's a global company. I know you personally go and visit many of your offices around the world. One of the most uh, topical international issues right now is, is trade, uh, not only with the U.S. and China, but even the U.S. and Mexico and Canada and the EU. Uh, it seems like there's been a little bit of a disruption in, in international trade that has, has spooked investors a little bit over the last year. What, what are your thoughts on that, and how do you see some of that playing out? I think trade is an issue that has had a much larger impact on the global economy than the raw numbers alone would lead one to believe. Particularly from a U.S. perspective, it's fairly easy to run the numbers and say, okay, we've put tariffs on this amount of imports, and uh, we've faced reciprocal tariffs on that amount of exports, and mathematically, it's just not that big of a deal for the U.S. economy. And that's probably true from a direct perspective. The U.S. is not a very open economy, by which I mean that trade isn't really a very large part of what we do. But what we've seen globally over the past year or so is a significant decline in trade volumes relative to production. For a long time, trade ran above production, uh, which was a sign that the global economy was able to add value across the supply chain. With the start of the trade wars now more than a year ago, that has come off the boil pretty quickly. We've seen trade volumes decline. And they're running below industrial production now. And I think that the impact on business sentiment has been quite damaging, particularly in parts of the world where trade is a big part of what they do. And I'll point to Europe here as an example. Uh, the European economy is doing really poorly, and I think a big part of that is a decline in global trade. Europe is exposed to China. China has faced sanctions from the U.S. and, as a result, has presumably pulled back on some of its own investment, and that has impacted Europe. Not only that, whatever the resolution between the U.S. and China is, uh, I don't think that there is an expectation, nor should there be, that that means trade will no longer be on the table. The U.S. and China will still have to sort out the enforcement of any agreement. Uh, the, the ways in which they monitor one another are going to leave the relationship vulnerable to tension over the longer term. Not only that, there's the possibility, and it has been talked about, that uh, once an agreement has been reached with China, uh, if an agreement is reached with China, that the U.S. could then pivot and, and start to uh, try to renegotiate its agreements with Europe. So, so this trade issue, irrespective of any agreement that's reached in the here and now, is something that we're going to have to deal with for, for the next few years. Maybe we can shift back to a couple more questions directly on the U.S. Uh, housing has been a very strong force in the recovery over the last few years. Recently, it seems like home prices in, in many markets are starting to retrench a little bit. What are Alliance Bernstein's thought on, on housing, and what should investors be looking for there? Yeah, you, you've described the trajectory the housing market has followed very well, which is to say that during the expansion, the early parts of the expansion, it, it did quite well, and it has come off the boil a little bit. That's something we would expect. It's uh, easy enough to forget now, but remember that in 2018, interest rates rose quite significantly. And as interest rates rose, the mortgage rate rose with it. And we saw the 30-year mortgage go above 5% in the, in the second half of last year for the first time in a long time. When mortgage rates go up, houses become less affordable, and you would expect to see uh, house prices come down. And, and indeed, that's what we're seeing. Uh, we also see it, by the way, in the automobile industry, right? another sector where people tend to borrow money to buy things. 
anywhere where you borrow money to buy things, when interest rates go up, that good becomes more expensive. And so we've seen slowing in auto sales as well. Uh, and that's what we would expect to see as interest rates rise uh, at any point. Um, that said, interest rates have come back down now, and mortgage rates have come back down a little bit. And so the outlook for housing has brightened a little bit over the course of this year. It, it, it's a good example of a case where the Fed's decision to back away from near-term rate increases is supportive of the economy because rates have come back down, mortgages come back down, and that should give the housing market a little bit more room to breathe. Uh, we don't anticipate the sort of uh, price inflation that we saw in the run-up to the last crisis for a whole host of reasons, um, but I think that there's little reason to fear a collapse either. Terrific. Well, you know, uh, one thing I always think about, in, and we touched on it earlier, you talked about how wage growth has picked up. Uh, productivity is really the magic, the magic tool to prevent that wage growth from resulting in large inf inflation moves. W what are your thoughts on U.S. productivity? Do you, do you, how do you see it progressing from here? Is there a big opportunity with technology like we talked about earlier on the podcast? Yeah. So productivity is something of a mystery. Productivity has been much lower over the course of this expansion than in past expansions. And it isn't just in the U.S. It's, it's global, which makes one think that there's something deeper underlying that. Uh, economists, frankly, don't have a great explanation for why that is. And uh, anecdotally, I think that the measured productivity numbers don't match the way many of us feel in the sense that we have access to technology and we have access to information and we're able to work remotely in ways that we were not able to do before. Right? So certainly it feels like we have the ability to be more productive, and yet the statistics persistently show the opposite, which is that productivity has been growing at around 1% a year, one and a quarter. Um, I think part of it has to do with the generation gap in that when you have a new technology, it tends to take time for the productivity gains of it to be fully monopolized, uh, to be fully uh, utilized, I should say. Um, if you think about it in the context of a cell phone, there's a difference between playing Candy Crush, which may not be the most productive endeavor that we could undertake, uh, and building things with the phone. And it tends to be the younger generation that's doing more of the latter. And so as they enter the workforce, as you have a generation of people who have grown up with that technology and use it instinctively in a way that older generations do not, perhaps we'll be able to reap those productivity gains in a, in a more pronounced way. Uh, in the meantime, though, it remains something of a mystery, and um, because it is a global phenomenon, it, it seems like there is something deeper going on. Uh, I would observe also that there are things besides waiting for technology that we as an economy could do to boost, product, boost productivity. Uh, on the governmental side, uh, investment in infrastructure and uh, proper investment in infrastructure could be a significant gain to productivity, uh, roads, bridges, the electric grid, things like that. Uh, on the private side, one of the things that's been disappointing about this expansion is that the corporate sector has taken money that they're able to access very cheaply and generally used it for special dividends and stock buybacks rather than reinvesting it into businesses. Uh, business investment has not risen as much as we would have hoped. And if we saw a change in behavior there, uh, that would be particularly promising. I, I would point out that there's good reason to be skeptical that we will. Businesses received a massive subsidy in the form of a tax cut last year. And the result was that we saw the, the, the largest uh, share buyback quarters in history rather than a, a significant bounce in, in longer-term investment. So, so I don't hold out a lot of hope that we'll see a change in behavior there, but if we did, it would be a very good thing for productivity in the medium term. So just to follow up on that for, for investors, uh, as you were saying, buybacks have been very strong. 
I believe, in the fourth quarter of 2008, if you of eight, I'm sorry, 2018, if you were to annualize that number, it would be almost a trillion dollars, I think, of corporate buybacks. So do you at Alliance Bernstein actually kind of see that that buyback trend continuing? Because it definitely, I think, has, has supported stock prices to some degree. I think it has clearly supported stock prices to some degree. I doubt that we will see it go up as much as it did last year. Uh, again, we view the, the corporate tax cuts as sort of a one-off, and, and businesses had some significant benefits front-loaded as a part of the tax re reform bill that, that went into effect last year. That won't be repeated, so I don't think we'll see the same magnitude. Um, but it is a well-entrenched trend that businesses seem more interested in, in uh, balance sheet engineering and, and, and things like that rather than longer-term investments. And, and it is an overhang that is limiting productivity and, and growth in the economy writ large, even if it is boosting shareholder value in the near term. Um, credit spreads have actually been pretty, pretty benign between you know, very highly levered companies and companies that don't carry a, a ton of debt. Uh, and many people have sort of migrated out on that, that debt curve to invest in the more highly levered companies. Do you have any thoughts about U.S. corporate debt in terms of uh, where investors should be looking or how you feel about the, the leverage cycle for corporate America? So leverage is only a problem when you don't have a lot of revenue coming in, right? And as long as the economic outlook is relatively solid, and our expectation is that it will stay that way, we're, we're looking for growth of around 2% this year and again next year. Uh, as long as it stays that way, the, the leverage in corporate America as a whole ought to be manageable. And so leaving aside the question of valuations, which go up and which go down, in a general sense, we don't see the scope for a significant credit event. We're not looking for a wave of defaults or anything like that. Um, because the economy is strong enough to support the revenue side of most of these businesses. And um, it, it's a good thing to be able to say that from a macro perspective because, you know, there are two ways that you do end up in a recession over time. One of them is a classic business cycle where the Fed tightens too much and, and that throws the economy into a recession. The Fed's made very clear they're not interested in doing that. Uh, the other is that you find excess leverage uh, and you find a bubble, in essence, right? Financial markets inflate a bubble, and when that bursts, it proves to be disruptive. This was the story of the last recession. Uh, when we look around, whether it's at corporate America or, or in other sectors of financial markets, we don't see that sort of disruptive bubble brewing right now. That's not to say that there aren't maybe pockets where there's a little bit of excess leverage, and it's not to say that every company will pay back their debt, but we don't see the sort of systemic risk that we saw in the run-up to the last cycle. And uh, as a result of that, it, it's a question for investors about how much risk they're willing to take on an idiosyncratic company level or, or at a sectoral level, rather than the sort of thing that I think you have to worry about the, the, the debt in corporate America as a potential macro risk right now. Any final thoughts for our listeners? I think that what we want to try to encourage our clients to do, the people who invest with us, is to take a longer-term approach to this. We talked a little bit earlier on uh, about the difference between cyclical things, where we're talking about what's going to happen in the next three, six, nine months, and, and structural things that will play out over the next six, 12, nine, six, nine, 12 years. Um, those are both valid approaches to investing, but for most people, most of the time, looking at the longer term is a much better way to invest. There's so much noise in the near term, and we're, we're in an environment where we all have access to information in real time about every company, every country, every economy. You can end up in a situation where you get paralysis by analysis, where, where looking at all of those things obscures the underlying truth. What is the underlying truth? 
the underlying fundamentals for the U.S. economy are generally strong. Right? We have a very strong labor market. As long as that is the case, it's difficult to envision a scenario where the economy goes into a recession. The outlook globally is not as strong, but neither is it disastrous. I think too many investors are too worried about the near-term risk of a recession um, for a variety of different reasons. And over time, we have structural forces that point to lower growth, but that doesn't mean that you end up with negative growth every time there's a stiff breeze, right? It isn't going to blow the economy over. This economy has been very resilient over the last decade. It's lived through a lot of shocks, uh, and, and I think it has the ability to continue to do that for a while. It doesn't mean that the expansion will last forever, but I don't think that we need to panic every time things look a little bit worse. And Q1 is going to be a good example of that. Growth is going to be weaker in the first quarter, and it doesn't mean that the economy is about to, to slam to a halt. Right? We've seen this before in this cycle, and keeping that longer-term perspective, I think, helps people make better decisions. That's great, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us. That's a great summary uh, to try to keep things in perspective for our listeners. Uh, I really enjoyed this, and I hope you'll come back to see us at IBD soon, and we can have another one of these discussions. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this week on Investing with IBD. As a reminder, I'm going to be in Chicago next week uh, for the Trading Summit, so Chris and Justin will be in the studio. But thanks, Chris, for joining me today. Always love it, and a uh, little little nervous about having to run the show by myself next week. I know you're, you're gonna you're gonna see how fun it is. Yeah, uh, but remember, talk about that earnings options strategy. Love the earnings options. So thanks, everybody. I'm Arusha Pierce, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton charts, make sure to go to investors.com/podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.